are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me on for what is, for me, a Thursday afternoon. It's 12 noon here on the West Coast of the United States, and I'm speaking to you from my office which sits in my back garden at my home here. And what we like to do whenever I'm able to is get together on a Thursday afternoon and I deal with your questions. Questions about the Bible, questions about the Christian life, questions about whatever. And I certainly don't claim or think that I have all the answers to such questions, but I do what I can. And I'm maybe helpful for a few people for a few things. I don't know what great qualifications I have to answer your questions other than I have been a student and a teacher of the Bible for many years. Actually, I started teaching the Bible when I was 16 years old. I had sort of a unique opportunity to start teaching adults at a uh, small home Bible study. And uh, pretty much ever since I was 16 years old, I've been teaching the Bible regularly. And through some curious circumstances along the way, For more than 25 years, I've had an online Bible commentary that, again, some people find helpful, and we're working very hard to get translated into many languages around the world. By the way, uh, we've had some good news for that. We've just put up some new French content. It's been difficult for us to get translation and editing and proofreading for our French content, but we're just beginning. And so at the website, EnduringWord.com, you can look at the menu and find on that menu French commentary, and uh, we're just getting our feet wet in that. And I've also learned that in a very short time, probably within the next week or so, our dedicated Farsi language website will be up. We've been putting a lot of energy and resources into our Farsi translation, and we're about ready to launch our dedicated Farsi website, hopefully within a week or so. But anyway, enough with that. I want to get on to your questions today. Uh, But before we deal with your questions, I always try to deal with a question uh, either of my own choosing that comes in through social media or email, or maybe it's leftover from a previous week. And that's what we want to deal with first today. And here's the question that comes from Ray by Facebook. The question is simply this. um, Should we pray daily for forgiveness. Now, Ray begins his question. Uh, again, he's writing from Facebook with a lot of kind words about my book, Standing in Grace. If I was a better marketer, I'd have one to show you right here. But I wrote a book uh, really dealing with the New Testament understanding of grace that I called Standing in Grace. If, you, uh, if you're interested, you can get it off of Amazon or wherever. But anyway, uh, Ray also mentioned some wonderful friends that we have in common, and then he sort of begins asking his question. And it's sort of long the way he phrases his question, but let me, I'll, I'll read it even for the length of it, and then we'll kind of boil it down. Here's Ray in his question. The Bible teaches that we're completely saved the moment we're born again, and it's completely by God's grace through our simple acceptance of the gospel reality. And God's grace is how he feels about us and deals with us as his children. I love all of that and agree. Okay, again. He was talking about reading my book, Standing in Grace. Okay, he continues on. My question is, what are your thoughts on Jesus's teaching for us to pray for daily forgiveness? This is something I've been confused about in the past, but I haven't gotten too far into reconciling. Just on the surface, why pray for forgiveness 
when I've been totally and utterly forgiven. Now that I'm really trying to soak in God's dealing with me by grace alone, this passage makes me a little nervous. I know it's required of God's children to forgive others in light of how much he's forgiven us. And I know it's assumed that we will forgive. And if we don't, there's a reason to doubt whether we've truly been born again. I just am really enjoying this biblical teaching of grace in a fresh way. And I don't want to continue to fall prey to an earn and deserve relationship with God. So I figured I'd reach out to you and see what your thinking is on this. Okay, so Ray, thank you for your question. Ray's question um, seems to be kind of spun off from what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. This is, of course, part of the great Sermon on the Mount, when in the section that we often call the Lord's Prayer, maybe it would be better titled the Disciples Prayer, but whatever, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, in verses 11 and 12, as part of that, Jesus said that we should pray thus, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I guess Ray's basic idea there is, look, um, we should be regularly praying for forgiveness. Now, we got to admit, those words of Jesus telling us to pray after this pattern in Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, it's not exactly Jesus telling us saying daily, we should pray daily, forgive my sins, but it's pretty close to it. I would say the general idea is there. And Ray's question is actually very good. If we have been forgiven once and for all by what Jesus did at the cross, why do we have to continue to ask for forgiveness? Again, let me rephrase that, or just repeat it, actually. If we have been forgiven once and for all by what Jesus did at the cross, why do we have to continue to ask for forgiveness, as is at least implied by what Jesus uh, told us to pray uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer? Okay, now, Ray, I would put it to you this way. The answer is not found in the idea of salvation, but it is found in the idea of fellowship for the believer, the one who's born again by God's spirit, adopted into God's family, made righteous because at the cross, Jesus took their sins and gave them his righteousness. I could go on and on, but the one who's truly born again, their sins are forgiven in the past, present, and future it was truly finished at the cross. So, please understand, and Ray, I don't think you would disagree with this, but I'm just trying to state it for the sake of clarity. We don't lose our salvation when we sin. Now, a lifestyle of sin, a conscience that is not convicted of sin, may demonstrate that someone isn't really saved at all, but, but I just want to remind everybody you didn't earn your salvation by not sinning, and you can't lose it by sinning or continued sinning. Think of what it would be like if someone was constantly gaining and losing their salvation. Okay, today I really gave to the Lord. I'm forgiven, all that. That's great, wonderful. Tomorrow I sin, I lost my salvation, but the next day I can get it back again, back and forth, back and forth. Friends, that's... that's uh, a life of no assurance, no certainty, no confidence of our salvation. So, Ray, I would say that the issue here isn't salvation, 
But salvation is not the only issue in view here. There's also the matter of fellowship with God. Ray, I'll put it to you this way. Sin that may not lose my salvation can certainly interrupt or hinder my fellowship with God. My shared experience of his life, his joy, his peace, his power, his presence in me. So I'm I'm drawing a distinction between the security of salvation and fellowship that may be hindered. Let me show you a couple verses that speak to this. I'm going to speak to you from 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. First, let's begin with 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we, do not, we lie and do not practice the truth. Pretty dramatic statement there. What's one of the things I love about this letter of 1 John? It's so straightforward. There's not a lot of ambiguity in it. If you say that you have, now notice, he he uses the phrase again and again. I'll just show it to you one more time. If we have fellowship with, we, he's speaking of believers. I mean, that's the general thing. I mean, we wouldn't say absolutely only believers, not that there couldn't be some in the congregation who weren't, but in general, he's speaking to believers here. If we have fellowship, if we say we do, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, John is dealing here with someone who makes a false claim to fellowship. They say they fellowship with God, but in fact, they don't. It's possible for someone to think that they have a fellowship relationship with God that they do not actually have. You know, I would say this, that many Christians are not really aware of their true condition before God. They know that they're saved. They've experienced conversion and have repented at some time in their life, but they don't live in true, ongoing, active enjoyment of fellowship with God. So John's saying there, if someone walks in darkness, by the way, walk there indicates a pattern of living, then they lie and do not practice the truth. God has no darkness at all. He mentioned that in the previous verse, chapter one, verse five. If someone claims to be in fellowship with God, and by the way, we'd say fellowship is a relationship of common relation, common interest, sharing of things. Yet if that person does walk in darkness, it's not a truthful claim. Now, again, the issue here is fellowship, not salvation. The Christian who temporarily walks in darkness is still saved. But they're not in fellowship, at least not in in close fellowship, in true fellowship with God. Now, let's move on here now to verse 7, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, again, when he says, walk in the light— I think we understand that to mean to walk in a generally obedient life. Someone isn't harboring known sin. They're not resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit on a particular point. And again, he's telling us that it's possible for believers to walk in the light. Now, we understand it is not possible for believers on this side of eternity 
to live a life of sinless perfection, but we can walk in the light. Again, he's not talking about perfect obedience. He's talking about walking in the light. So now the Christian life here, he describes it as walking, which I like that it implies action. It's not just passivity. And then we have fellowship with one another. We almost would have expected that John would have said we have fellowship with God. Now that's true, but we also have fellowship with one another. And let me remind you what the last part of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 said. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As we walk in the light, we also enjoy the continual cleansing of Jesus. Now, again, that is another indication for us that he doesn't mean sinless perfection. Friends, we need a continual cleansing, which will mean that there will be at least some sense in which we will continually ask God to cleanse us, ask for forgiveness. We need this because we live in a sinful world and have to deal with sinful flesh. Even though Christians have been cleansed in important general sense, I like the illustration that is quoted, comes from John chapter 13 when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. We have this wonderful idea of our feet needing to be cleansed. So, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So, sin is the hindrance to fellowship, and the blood of Jesus received by faith is the payment for that sin. It solves that problem, and it opens up the way for consistent fellowship with God. Friends, you can't come to fellowship with God through philosophical speculation. You can't come to fellowship with God through merely intellectual education. You can't come to fellowship with God through drugs or entertainment, through scientific investigation. You can only come to fellowship with God by dealing with a sin problem through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, should we pray daily for forgiveness? Yes, we should, but not out of a sense Oh, if I don't pray every day for forgiveness, I might lose my salvation and die in my sleep and go to hell. No, we pray daily for forgiveness because we want to stay in close fellowship with God to have nothing hindering our ongoing relationship with him. And we especially pray for forgiveness when the Holy Spirit brings to our mind some sin that might hinder in any way our fellowship with God. So, Ray, I hope that's helpful for you. I hope that answers your question. And uh, with that, I'm going to click on over and go to the uh, chat here and take a look at some of the questions that come in. We got a question from Adonis who asks this. Must the children of Israel at least partially return to the land of Israel before they repent? If so, then what texts would you use to prove that? Okay, Adonis, this is very interesting. I think you're asking a great question here because to me, it puts into perspective something that I think is often neglected in our study of the covenants. I'm very big on the idea of God's plan of the ages unfolding through the covenants. Specifically, I would give the most attention to the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant he made with Abraham, Uh, The Mosaic Covenant, or sometimes we call that the Old Covenant, that's the covenant he made with Israel um, at Mount Sinai and sort of the covenant governing national Israel. 
I would say the covenant that God made with David, the Davidic covenant, which specifically um, described that the Messiah would come from his royal line and genetics. And then finally, and most importantly, the new covenant. Adonis, when you look through the Old Testament passages relevant to the new covenant, I'm specifically thinking of passages in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They include the gathering of Israel and their restoration to the land. I I see this very rarely talked about, but it's right there. Those new covenant passages, especially in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there may be some in some of the other prophets that aren't coming to my mind immediately. They include the restoration of Israel and not only their restoration to salvation in the sense that Paul would later speak about it in Romans, that, that as part of God's ultimate plan of the ages, Israel will come to faith in their Messiah, but their restoration to the land. Now, we don't see anything in the scriptures that sort of requires that a Jewish person must be in Israel before they're brought to faith. No, not at all. But we do see it as part of the package, so to speak, of the new covenant. There is a sense in which the new covenant is not yet completely fulfilled. Now, it's completely established. There's no doubt about it. Jesus did that by his death on the cross. But it's not completely fulfilled. All the promises of the new covenant are not yet fulfilled because they include the salvation of national Israel, as Paul elaborated in the book of Romans. So, Adonis, I would not say that they have to return before they repent but it's all bound up together. The restoration of Israel to the land, the, um, their national repentance and coming to trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. It's all bound up together as promises connected with the new covenant that was established by Jesus Christ. So Adonis, great question. And, and I hope I've answered it there for you. Next question comes from... Vanessa, who writes via Facebook, Vanessa asks, is it bad when a person who has the gift of prophecy gives a word and says, thus declares the Lord? A sister gave me the answer to something that I had asked God that morning and no one knew it. And I have doubts about those words. Well, I think you're asking a very relevant and a very good question here, Vanessa. And let me just say that it's my perception. Well, let, let me first speak to our viewers, because I know that we have a lot of viewers, both live and people who watch later, who come from a lot of different backgrounds. Just to clarify, I want to be completely up here. I, I am what is sometimes called a continuationist when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I, I believe that the Holy Spirit intends that the gifts, including the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, continue on to the present day, and that God never withdrew them from the church. And I think that the church has neglected them, has abused them, has misused them in many circumstances, but God never withdrew those gifts from the church. Okay, now, I am a continuationist, and I've been thinking, you know, I keep thinking of videos that I should make, and I, I, I really think sometime I should, I should make some videos that spell out the case uh, that I think is true in Bib- the Bible and in history for the fact that the gifts of the Spirit continue. However, Vanessa, let me say, though I believe in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit, I believe that there's a tremendous amount of nonsense and foolishness and harmful 
stuff that happens in the name of the Holy Spirit that isn't attributed to him at all. And I think that a lot of Christians are just not helpful in their understanding or exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So, Vanessa, for myself, I am... I don't like talking about people as having the gift of prophecy, even though I believe in the gift of prophecy, and I believe that it can be exercised today. But I I look at it more, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, as it being a manifestation of the Spirit rather than an office. I'm allergic. Look, I, I know people may differ with me, but I'm just telling you my perspective here. I'm allergic to giving people the title of apostle or prophet in the world today. I think it just makes stuff weird. I see a lot of weirdness under those things. Now, I do believe that God speaks to his people today through the gift of prophecy. However, the Bible says very clearly in 1 Corinthians that prophecy should be tested. So, Vanessa, you are right in not just simply taking a purported word of prophecy, something that someone claims is a prophet, prophecy, or it comes from somebody who claims to be a prophet. Vanessa, you're wise. You're not just taking that at face value and saying, well, the prophet said it. It must be true. No. Test prophecy. First, we test it by the measure of God's eternal, never-changing word. And, and I, I often tell people, listen, If you want to hear from God, don't seek out a prophet. You read your Bible. I don't think that we should be seeking out after prophets, though God may bring a word of prophecy to us. I know I've had it in my own life. I could give some pretty dramatic stories about that, but that's that's for another time altogether. So, Vanessa, you're wise in testing it by the scriptures and then also by simple discernment. So... Discernment would be the sense that the Holy Spirit would give you as a believer gifted with discernment or trusted, mature, godly believers in your life. You may say, hey, so-and-so said that they had a word for the Lord for me and this was it. Do you kind of think that that might be what God is saying to me and and take it from that? So I, I really believe that prophecy should, it must be, biblically speaking, tested. You're wise and being cautious about this. And and just by saying, I'm going to test this, I'm going to see whether or not it's from God, and then I'm going to seek to apply it in a way that is, um, you know, wise and godly and according to God's word. Uh, we should not do, especially we should not do radical things, but I would say even simple things, just because someone says, that's why I don't like it when people are overconfident in their claim to hear the Lord. I don't know if I'm expressing that very well, Vanessa, but let me just say, I don't like it when I hear, well, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, the Lord told me the other thing. I'm much more pleased if somebody would say, I think God may have been telling me this. It's got to be tested. And when people display this strange overconfidence in their ability to hear from God, listen, as I've said before, you want to hear from God, go to the scriptures. This is reliable. This is the word that never changes. And may God bring a spontaneous word through word of prophecy? I believe he might, may, but that's nothing compared to his confirmed, enduring 
uh, revealed word in the scriptures. So I hope that's been helpful for you there, Vanessa. I think you're wise in, in being a little bit hesitant on this one. All right, next question comes from our YouTube viewer, Jordan, who says, it's always bothered me that the old prophet deceived the young prophet and yet didn't get judged by God, but the young did. Can you explain, please? Okay, Jordan, you're speaking of an instance. I wish you would have given me a chapter and a verse because I know the incident you're talking about. I want to say it's in 2 Kings, probably 2 Kings, but I, I can't you know, immediately come to my mind where. L- listen, Jordan, I would just say this. Go to my commentary on that passage and uh, walk through it because I know that I deal with that section. But, you know, I, I don't have a chapter and verse right in front of me and I, I really don't want to distract from the rest of the show. But again, you're basically question, why didn't he get judged by God, but the young did? Jordan, let me just just remind all of us, remind myself, remind you, remind everyone listening. That when God exercises his judgments, he knows things that we don't know. And there may be many factors involved that the biblical record doesn't tell us about, yet are nevertheless very relevant to the situation. And God judges on the basis of those things. So it's easy for us to look at something in the Bible or just in daily life and say, well, why did God do that? Why didn't God do that? And again, I, I, don't, I don't think it's sinful to ask those questions, but somewhere along the way, we have to come back to the sense, God knows more about the situation than I do. And there may be all kinds of factors involved that maybe the biblical record doesn't tell us about, or if it's just in a situation of life right in front of us that we don't see, that we can't perceive yet are nevertheless true and compelling. If we knew everything God knows, his judgments would make a lot more sense to us. But look, let's face it, we don't know, and we will never know everything God knows. So we got to be careful about passing judgment on God's judgment. Now, Jordan, I'm not saying that you're doing this. You're you're just asking a question. I think it's an appropriate question. I have more in mind atheists, unbelievers, when I say that. Listen, I I occasionally will read or hear from atheists or unbelievers who feel perfectly free to criticize God's judgment. Well, why did God judge this person? Why did God judge that person? Why did God do this? And listen, what I find again and again is a common thread is they feel it's wrong for God to judge anybody, or at least, you know, just the people they would judge. But they don't have any problem judging God at all. And friends, it just doesn't work like that. God is the great judge of all the universe, and you and I are not. Now, again, Jordan, I I, I don't want to say that that applies to your particular question. You're just asking a good question from the Bible, which deserves an answer. Dig into my commentary, EnduringWord.com. Go up to the commentary menu, look up the chapter and verse. I know what you're talking about. I think it's in 2 Kings, but without the chapter and verse right in front of me, I really can't get to it. Um, Look that up, get along to it, and I I think you'll see um, a good answer to that question. But just remember that in general, 
God's judgments are um, are God's judgments are in some way beyond our full comprehension. Okay, next question comes from Christian who asks, if the Holy Spirit who teaches us, why are there many doctrinal differences in different denominations? <laughs> Christian, um, I'm constantly impressed by the quality of the questions that come from our uh, viewers. Christian, let me tell you, the problem is not with the Holy Spirit. The problem is with us. Um, sometimes our understanding is just weak. It's not good. It's not strong. But then there's other times when, to be honest, our understanding is affected by our own sinful, you know, uh, ideas, our own sinful blind spots is a good question, a good phrase to use for that. So listen, uh, it's not the Holy Spirit that's teaching different things to different people, but it is um, our own weakness and how we receive this. Although, let me say this, I'm, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit on what I said to you there, Christian. I believe that there may be times when the Holy Spirit gives a different emphasis to a church or a movement of churches. Look, look, we just see that at any time and place, it may be that the Holy Spirit would speak to a church and say, you all need to emphasize holiness, obedience unto the Lord. This is what you need to emphasize. Now, Okay, great. Wonderful. That's a beautiful, powerful thing. Uh, but what you need to understand is that there may be another time where God says to his church, you know, the Holy Spirit may say, I want to emphasize my grace, my love, my, uh, my mercy to those people. Th those two things are not contradictory. They certainly go together, but there may be a season when the Holy Spirit wants to prioritize one based on the condition. Think of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. God had something different. Jesus had something different to say to each one of his churches. Now, they all kind of tracked along. None of it was contradictory, but there were different emphasis. You could imagine a different denomination. Boy, this would be kind of an interesting teaching to do sometime. Seven denominations from the seven letters to the seven. You think of all these denominations that have these different emphasis, and it's not like the Holy Spirit is contradicting himself, but for certain people at certain places, he wants to emphasize something. Now, where we kind of mess that up is where we think that if the Holy Spirit is emphasizing something to us, it's the only thing that he ever wants emphasized to all of the church throughout all ages, hallelujah, amen. We, we fail to see the church truly as a body, a body that not only encompasses a congregation, but many congregations, God's work in the world, God's work around the globe, and even God's work throughout generations. We are a body. So we're not all going to be the same, but we should all have that same DNA within us. So Christian, I hope that helps answer the question. And now you got me thinking, I, I think I want to do a teaching sometime seven denominations from Revelation chapter two and three. Uh, again, because um, God just has different things to say to different congregations, different things. He deals with them according to their need and their circumstance. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Christian. From our YouTube viewer, Angela, 
no, Angelia, excuse me there, Angelia, from our YouTube viewer, Angelia, we get this question. Is there something wrong in listening to worship music in Spanish in rhythms such as salsa, merengue, and other kinds of dance to it, and kind of dance to it? Uh, Angelia, I have a pretty broad mind when it comes to this. For me, it's the kind of thing that if it's not forbidden by scripture, I do not want to forbid it. So I would say, Angelia, you have liberty in the Lord to do such a thing. God does not prescribe any particular style of music. Um, Different people find different styles of music more connecting or accommodating to their praise and worship. And... um, Since the Psalms give us an entire span of worship experience, uh, sometimes very contrite, sometimes very melancholy, sometimes very joyful, sometimes very triumphant, sometimes very exuberant, I I think that we can find room for even some salsa or merengue uh, beats in the midst of our worship and if you wanted to uh, sway a little bit to it or whatever, then I think you have freedom in Christ to do so. Now, if you're among other believers, like in a worship service, which doesn't sound to me like your question applies to that, but I'll just take it if someone did want to apply that to it, then you want to make sure that you're not m- making a distraction to other people um, because we, we need to love one another when we're gathered together in our worship experience. But uh, I think we have freedom in Christ for this. Thanks for such a great question. Okay, uh, our YouTube viewer, N, asks this question. Can we refer to Jesus' brothers as his stepbrothers? I think most of the times they're referred to as half-brothers, but can the term stepbrother be used also? Uh, N, perhaps. I'm not... I'm not exactly clear. Okay, it, it, like a lot of things, it all depends on how somebody wants to define stepbrother. So, if stepbrother defines um, children of, let's just say in this case, uh, the same mother, because stepbrothers could also be from the same father, but in this case, children of the same mother, but of different husbands, then of course you could call, you would not call Jesus' siblings stepbrothers. Because though Mary conceived Jesus by a miracle of the Holy Spirit without sexual relations, what we call the virgin birth, which would be more properly called the virgin conception, Though Jesus was conceived by a miracle without sexual relations, uh, Mary had no prior husband. But if we would refer to uh, stepbrothers or stepsisters as anybody uh, that had the same mother but a different parent in the place of a father, then I suppose so. Look, I I wouldn't have a problem if somebody did that. It it would just get down to how technical somebody wanted to be in the description. But I'm I'm not offended, let me just say that, by somebody referring to Jesus' brothers and sisters as stepbrothers or stepsisters. Um, 
it, it's just not the same. And and I, I also want to say this. Maybe I'm backtracking just a little bit, but step brother or sister also at least implies it doesn't exactly say, but it implies a blended family. And we can say this about Jesus and his family. It was not a blended family. When Mary gave birth, when Mary conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, Jesus within her womb, she was engaged to Joseph. And when he was born, she was married to Joseph. So, uh, yeah, we're not talking about, strictly speaking, a, a blended family that would be kind of taking the, um, the, uh, the picture a little bit too broadly there. Okay. Um, next question comes from Susan Davies. Hello, Sue. Nice for you to be viewing today. Um, it says, we are supposed to help widows and orphans. Who else? Well, Sue, what a great question to ask. Okay, let me just give you a few other things. Widows and orphans are specifically mentioned in the scripture as those that people in the family of God should help. We're also given the idea that we should help uh, prisoners. Do you remember that in Hebrews? What is it? Hebrews chapter 13, where he says specifically that we should remember those who are in prison. So prisoners are another group of people that the Bible specifically says that we should help and that we should have a heart of ministry towards. But then we can say specifically, Susan, widows, orphans, prisoners, but then again, anyone in need, anyone in need that the Holy Spirit would lead us to. Now, it can get a little overwhelming, especially in a modern age when we consider that the needs are endless and overwhelming. So, um, because those needs are endless and overwhelming, we can't put upon ourselves the responsibility to fix everything, but we should, especially as led by the Holy Spirit, do whatever good that we can. And um, I know that's your heart, Sue. God bless you guys. Uh, great question there. Widows, orphans, prisoners, and then I would define the next, uh, whoever the Holy Spirit puts in your path um, and gives you the freedom, the opportunity to, to, to help. Those, those are uh, people that, that believers should be helping. Okay, next question comes from Oluwole. Uh, I do hope I'm saying your name correctly. Thank you for that. Uh, Nigeria uh, says, from Nigeria, without water baptism, can I be a Christian? Okay, Oluwole, I, I would put it in this way. You can be a Christian without water baptism, but you can't be an obedient Christian without water baptism. Now, I don't think that water baptism is a question of salvation, but that does not mean that it's not important. It's very important. Because if Jesus Christ is our Lord, we should do the things he told us to do, and he told his followers that they should be baptized. And there is something spiritually powerful and real in baptism. It's not just an empty ceremony. It's something whereby God illustrates and sort of preaches out the work that he's already done in us. And it should be enough for us to say it's a matter of obedience. 
Oluwole, uh, I think that a lot of times Christians get into the trap of feeling that they have to reach some status of worthiness before they can be baptized. I don't think that we should think like that. We have the example of people in the New Testament, of people being baptized immediately upon expressing their faith in Jesus Christ. We have that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We have that with the Ethiopian eunuch uh, later on in the book of Acts. So, um, again, I would say that a person can be a Christian and not be baptized, but they cannot be an obedient Christian and be baptized. And look, shouldn't we all want to be obedient Christians? Isn't this just what we should do? A disobedient Christian, those two words should not go together because Jesus Christ is our Lord. Uh, Next question comes from our TWR360 viewer. Gives me a great excuse to welcome our TWR360 audience. You know, TWR360 does an amazing, amazing job of reaching out to the world and uh, reaching it through this great, great um, resource. So in any regard, the question is, uh, who is the statue of the woman on your shelf? All right, Bob, I'll show you here. This is a statue of Catherine von Bora Luther. This was the wife of Martin Luther. If you're really curious, I could show you that I have a matching set here. I have a matching set of Martin Luther and Katie, uh, Catherine von Bora Luther. And so look, sometimes I put out Martin, sometimes I put out Katie. She was a great woman of God, and she really did Martin Luther a lot of good, and really was a true partner with him in ministry. Um, She was someone who helped him sometimes when he was really down. But one of the greatest things that Katie Luther did for Martin Luther was uh, his home was a huge place of hospitality and ministry, and she was in charge of all of that. And so much of Luther's greatly influential work was done really in partnership with his wife as they exercised love and hospitality to other people. Um, Katie Luther is a great woman of God. Um, so that's the woman behind me on there, Katie Luther. I, I wish I had more bobbleheads of great Christians. So far, the only ones I've been able to find are Martin Luther, Spurgeon, Billy Graham, and John Wesley. Somebody sent me the John Wesley. Thank you, Jim Jacobson, for sending me the John Wesley uh, bobblehead. Um, feel free if anybody wants to send me another bobblehead of a Christian. I'm not looking for one of some kind of weird cult leader or anything like that. But, um, Anyway, that's to answer your question there, Jordan. Thank you. Or excuse me, Bob. Jordan asks this question. Did Ananias and Sapphira go to hell? Jordan, again, thank you for joining us on the YouTube audience. Jordan, I I would say um, we don't know. I kind of think that um, perhaps they did not go to hell, that actually they were saved um, because of what God did in bringing them home. And now look, I'm just going to be very straightforward with you. I don't think that the scriptures tell us enough to be certain either way. But I will say this that 
we have examples in the New Testament. One mentioned in 1 Corinthians and another mentioned kind of uh, alluding to it in 1 John. The scriptures bring before us the concept of God in discipline of believers, um, bringing them home to heaven. The idea would be that a believer has outlived their usefulness for the furtherance of God's kingdom on earth. So God just says, well, let's come on home. That may have been the case with Ananias and Sapphira. I I don't want to presume so. Um, It may be that Ananias and Sapphira were just plain false believers, that they were never truly converted. That's a possibility. Um, But I don't think that scriptures give us enough clarity to say that with any kind of um, certainty. So really, that's just how I would put it. We don't know for sure. We don't know for certain. But it may very well be that it was an act of discipline, so to speak. Severe discipline, of course. An act of discipline where God um, brought them home to heaven. Next question comes from our YouTube viewer, Michael. says, um, What happens to a true believer that struggles with a specific sin that has an addictive nature like pornography for decades and until death? Michael, first of all, uh, if you're asking, you know, does that person go to heaven? I guess, is that really your question? Well, first of all, you, you say that the person is a true believer, but they struggle with a specific sin. Mike, I, I want to say that the two key phrases used there are true believer and secondly, struggle. Because first of all, true believer would indicate to me that that person's faith is secure and in the right place. The second thing you'd say is that they struggle with their sin. Michael, the real danger point for a believer is when they no longer struggle with their sin. Look, in some way or another, we are going to struggle with sin until the day we die. I don't say that as an excuse to say, well, then who cares? We'll just struggle away. No. We we don't want to surrender to sin. We don't want to make a peace treaty with sin. We want to resist it and struggle against us. The believer should be frightened when they no longer struggle with sin. They just surrender to it. The struggle's over. They just give in. That could be a sign of a seared conscience. Someone who really isn't, you know, caring at all about the things of God and is in that very dangerous place of a seared conscience. So, um, really, uh, Michael, that, that's the thing I would point to, is that God really expects us to continue on in the struggle that we may feel constantly against sin, and to not surrender to it, but rather to hold the posture where we would say, Lord, I'm going to battle with this um, and keep battling until the ultimate victory is won in and through my resurrection. So, um, I think that's good uh, to, to think about it in those terms. And it's true, Michael, that there are certain sins that have what we would call something of an addictive nature. And this addictive nature is something that, um, well, it's stumbling for us, isn't it? 
And that's why we as believers should take great care to not ever get entrapped in sin, uh, not ever get um, enmeshed, especially in these addictive sins. Friends, I, I, Christians who deal with addictive substances such as alcohol, you got to be careful. You need to be careful. Do you have liberty in Christ? Perhaps so, but be careful. Um, a sport, of course, any kind of drug, whether it's um, legal or illegal, whether it's prescribed or not prescribed, you got to be careful with it. Um, things such as pornography, which according to what I've read, I mean, cause certain addictive things, even in brain chemistry. You got to be careful for those things. Even things having to do with social media and other things, you got to be careful with anything. We want to maintain our true liberty in Jesus Christ and not yield that to anything else. All right, so let me go on to the next question. Again, from Sue. Hi, Sue, there on Facebook. Asked this question, a friend dismissed attending church as one verse in the Bible. Doesn't the whole New Testament point to belonging to a fellowship as a key to a believer's life? Absolutely, positively, Susan. You're absolutely right on this. Now, the one verse that the person is probably thinking of is in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling together of the saints. But let me just say, there's something a little bit messed up with somebody who says, the Bible clearly commands something, but it only commands it in one place, so I don't have to worry about it. What What are we even talking about? <laughs> if the Bible clearly commands it, then that's enough. We, we don't have to go any further with that. It doesn't matter if it commands it in one place or many places. Now, if the Bible speaks to an issue in several places, we want to get the whole counsel of God on it. There's no doubt about that. But, but God forbid, we would just say, well, God only told me it once. I guess I don't have to listen. Oh, what are we even saying there? But the idea of God's kingdom being a community and the community of kingdom people is very important to the New Testament. You could say that it's woven within the fabric of the New Testament. The, the New Testament does not even comprehend someone with an isolated Christianity. If there is such a presentation of a person, they're a strange one-off situation, such as the Ethiopian eunuch that we mentioned before. No, no, no. A Christianity in its normal expression is intended to be lived in community. Now, listen, we understand that there's some people for particular reasons, they're not able to be a part of that. Well, we understand that there's the ideal and then there's the actual. But we can say there's no doubt that the Christian ideal for us is to be part of a good, strong congregation. So, Susan, I think you're correct on that. And um, the New Testament does point to belonging to a fellowship as an important part of a believer's life. And as much as Christians are able to do so, they should absolutely do so. Uh, let's see if there's any other questions here for today. Uh, I was going to see if there's anything else to talk about. Okay, look, let me just say something briefly here before we uh, break up for the day. We have uh, put out word that we're going to go on an enduring word cruise throughout the Mediterranean 2023, uh, October next year. It's not this year. It's not this year. It's next year, 2023 in the fall. 
And I don't know if I'm pleased to tell you or sad to tell you that uh, we're all filled up. Really kind of amazing. With, uh, with two weeks, we filled the whole thing up. But we are taking a waiting list, and there's always at least a few people to draw throughout, and we may be able to obtain more cabins. But right now, we have uh, more than 100 people signed up. Uh, it's going to be a tremendous time. Go to the Enduring Word website. You'll see a notice for the cruise. Uh, get on the waiting list. Maybe we'll get more cabins. Maybe a few people drop out. Uh, but man, we did this in 2019, and it was absolutely amazing. We're going to take one more question before we break. Remember, this is Mother's Day weekend coming up. Love your mother. The Bible tells us to do that. Honor your father and mother. So that's coming up here. And uh, the last question comes from N. How do we know when God disciplines us as mentioned in Hebrews 12? And in some sense, the answer to your question can only be understood by, uh, how would I put it? Can only be understood by discernment. Do you remember in the beginning of the letter of James, when he says, uh, my brothers, if any of you fall into various trials, rejoice, because God's using the trial to train you, to, he's using it for your good. And then immediately, he talks to the believer about praying for wisdom. I think there's a real connection in there. When we're in the midst of a trial, of some kind of difficulty, we should pray to God that he would give us discernment to know, is this an attack from the enemy that should be resisted and rejected? Is this the discipline of God in my life that I should submit to and learn from? Is it something else that I need the wisdom or discernment from God for? I think that we need to pray for wisdom because there's no one set of criteria, one set of rules that can give us the same answer, the proper answer in every circumstance. But I do think it's important for us to get this discernment, and that's why in James, first he talks about the profitability of trials and, and testings in our life, then immediately he begins speaking about our need to pray for wisdom. We need wisdom and discernment in trials because I want to know, Lord, is this something you want to give me victory out of, <laughs> escape, or is this something you want me to give victory in of? You're not going to deliver me from the situation. You're going to deliver me in the situation. So really, I think that's a good way to see it and to take note of it. So uh, I hope that's helpful for you there, Anne. And that brings us to the end of today's program. Listen, I am so, so pleased that you could join us. God bless you. Hope to be here with you next Thursday. Although I do got to say next Thursday, it'll be live on location. I'm going to be in a different part of the United States, but we'll just do it there. And I'm so pleased that you've been able to join me for today. God bless you. Uh, if you are looking for a good Bible resource, go to EnduringWord.com. Look at my Bible commentary and other resources. Another resource available on the YouTube channel. And, and, um... It always helps if you subscribe, if you like, if you click notifications. Look, it just, it just helps get our content out to other people. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. And we hope to see you again next week. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.